Welcome to Bounce Back Stronger, the podcast that explores ways to find peace and purpose no matter what happens. I'm your host, Donna Ferris, and today we have psychologist, international consultant, and author, Dr. Maria Soros with us. Is that the, I'm, Am I saying your last name right? Sierra, actually, it's French. Sierra? Mm-hmm. I think I can do that. <laughs> I'm your host, Donna Ferris, and today we have psychologist, international consultant, and author, Dr. Maria Siawa, with us. A little bit about Maria. Is that okay? Okay. With over three decades of experience, Maria has dedicated her career to providing the insights, tools, and stories necessary for cultivating resilience, health, wisdom, and effective leadership, especially in the face of life's challenges. As a really as a resilience expert and positive psychologist, Maria brings a wealth of knowledge and a genuine spirit of authenticity to her work. She is renowned for her wisdom, compassion, and ability to empower individuals to lead themselves and others with grace, even in the most trying moments. Maria is the author of two impactful books, A Short Course in Happiness After Loss and Other Dark Difficult Times, and Every Day Counts. Her work extends beyond the written word her work extends beyond the written word as she shares her expertise through speaking engagements, workshops, and consulting around the globe. Before we begin, I'd like to highlight that Maria will be leading a retreat program at Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health from February 2nd, from February two, from February 2nd through 4th, 2023, titled Finding Happiness in Difficult Times. And I took a similar course from her on the first anniversary of the death of a dear loved one and found it transformative in my grief journey. Thank you for joining us on Bounce Back Stronger. Th Maria, thank you for joining us on Bounce Back Stronger. I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. Happy to be here, Donna. And actually just the course is February 2nd through 4th, 2024. You, oh, you, I hit it wrong. So let me go back and fix that. Okay. Before we begin, I'd like to highlight that Maria will be leading a retreat program at Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health from February 2nd through 4th, 2024, titled Finding Happiness in Difficult Times. I took a similar course from her on the first I took a similar course from her on the first anniversary of the death of a dear loved one and found it to be transformative in my grief journey. Maria, thank you for joining us on Bounce Back Stronger. I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Donna. Thank you. Thank you. And I alluded uh, in that intro to how transformative that um, retreat was for me. I, I almost tear up now thinking about it. Mm. Um, your authenticity in discussing your journey and the tools and tips, um, and tips isn't a strong enough word, uh, it was so very helpful for me. So I just want to thank you for that. Oh, you're very, very welcome. That the work is tremendously meaningful to me, and as where I have began my career working with kids who were facing cancers and other blood diseases, and noticed that there were families who were losing their children who actually grew stronger, and that encouraged in me this question of what does it mean to be resilient in the worst moments? And that I think you give us hope that we can. I think that. That is, uh, if, if anything, for me, that was, that was, because um, I don't think we know. I, I think, I think a lot of times we're taught that, or there are examples are that people fall apart. Um, and that is my hope with this podcast really is to show people 
that have not only done that, but how, how they did that. Um, so anyway, I really appreciate that so much. You're welcome. So maybe the, this kind of gets to the first question in your th three decades of, in your three decades of experience, what key lessons have you learned about cultivating grounded optimism in changing and challenging situations? Yeah. I think the first lesson is we, we need to know that it's possible to experience heartbreak and find reasons to move forward or eventually believe in a future or over time cultivate a sense of meaning. Like it is possible that we we can move through the abyss of grief, which is often what it feels like in the beginning. Um, the second is to know that when we talk about optimism, we're really talking about grounded optimism, you know, gentle sort of steady optimism, not Disney fantasy, everything's <laughs> fine because it, it isn't, that would be delusional. Um, and the third important learning is to understand why optimism matters. Um, the absence of optimism often leads to despair. Yeah. I find it hard to actually, you know, get out of bed and function. So as a species, we do need a small amount of optimism in order to feel like there's value in getting out of bed and living our day. Um, and that, that can be hard to cultivate when we're in great pain. And it's helpful to know that the reason optimism matters is that it, it goes beyond getting us out of bed. That's sort of the first benefit. The second benefit that begins to accrue from there is to actually find a way to shape a life that integrates the loss so that we're never denying the loss and we don't re resolve it. I hate that term, but we actually find a way to integrate it and live into it just as fully as we learn to live into the things that lift us. And there's so much there. I think there's the fact that we like life to be kind of compartmentalized and black and white and, and happy and sad. And this really requires those who take this path to navigate a lot of gray. It's a lot of ands, right? I feel horrible and I miss this person and I'm still finding meaning and a reason to go on. And there can be so many tricky emotions there. Do you find that in your work? I do. I mean, you know, grief sends us into a territory of really complicated, difficult emotions, many of which are crowding on top of each other at the exact same time. I mean, I remember a few months after the loss of my younger brother, you know, laughing with one of my kids and then feeling horrible that I was laughing because my brother was never going to be able to laugh again in body. Right. And, mm -hmm. so, you know, there we have delight and guilt and then sorrow at the weight of the guilt, all crashing together oh, in time. Absolutely. I, and actually the first guest episode I had was uh, on his podcast was leaving guilt behind, because if there's one thing that we can get from some of these discussions is that your loved one would never want you to feel that way. Yeah. And it's important to recognize that it's not helpful. Uh, you know, certainly guilt is helpful in some other you know <laughs> areas, but certainly not here. I think guilt in the in the case of loss, personal loss, whether it's a family member, a, a friend, a child, or a pet, even, you know, guilt serves the function of reminding us of the intensity of our love, but it it it, it doesn't usually drive us very far forward. 
So I like to use the Brene Brown uh, image that she used that, you know, fear, anxiety, guilt, they get to, they get to be in the car with us, but they, they don't sit in the driver's seat and they don't get to choose the radio station. Right, you know, right. they're part of the and, journey, but. And, and some of it's shame, right? There's also the shame of that, which is, you know, certainly it makes me think of her because that's always, that's her area. Yeah. Um, agreed. You don't want that driving anything either. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And shame often arises out of the the notion that we could have done more, should have done more, should have known, ought to have been able to prevent it. I remember some really crazy thinking on my part after my brother died that if somehow we had given him a different name, it would have protected him. You know, and, not, and I, I was his older sister by 13 months. I mean, I was not the one choosing his name, but somehow we, the family, ought to have known that if we gave him a different name, it would have protected him. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's how intense the emotions are. Like, the longing to be able to rewrite the story. Often yeah, and I think- Feeling of guilt sorry. or shame or regret. Yeah, you know? and, I, and I think the the story is so important. You really hit something hard there for all of us is that when we're agitated in these heavy emotions, our stories get agitated too. And they get, you yeah. know, so far away from reality. And we have, it's helpful to know that it's helpful to know that when you're faced with all these things, your mind goes crazy, literally yeah. thinking yeah. of ways to kind of make sense out of it and make you be able to control it somehow. And it's, you know, it, it's just helpful to know what's happened. It's normal. It's a normal thing that can happen. And yes. you can rein that in with, you know, a lot of the tools maybe we'll talk about as yes. we go forward. Yeah. So one of my favorite things from that retreat, which I think is something that as we drive through this time where we're having difficulty with difficulty with loss or change, that you can hold on to regardless of whether it feels like it should work is this 3% happier idea. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. So as we're looking to integrate loss or disappointment or heartbreak or upheaval into our lives, any of the, the, you know, excruciating experiences, we know that those of us who experience states of positivity even briefly do better because positivity generates physiological respite as well as psychological respite. So if I'm laughing, if I'm at peace for a moment, if I'm enjoying the fact that the high school, which is right out my backyard, for whatever reason, the entire senior class seems to be going for a walk. And that's just fascinating. You know, for those few moments, 3%, five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, I'm in respite from my suffering. That kind of creates a physiological as well as a psychological oasis. And those oases give us a bit of energy and vitality, number one. But number two, we know that the brain actually functions better in states of positivity. We see more clearly we're able to integrate discrete pieces of information in constructive waves. We're more innovative. And so it's the difference between being miserable all day long, which certainly we is is we have earned the right to misery in loss, versus being miserable all day and having moments where we feel a bit of relief. And in that relief, a part of our brain kicks in and says, you know, I think it would be a good idea to reach out to a friend. I don't have to do this alone. And so we make the phone call, right? So 3% happiness refers to the general notion that 
uh, creating and and taking advantage of moments of positivity, even if they're tiny, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, actually serves us well. And it it's kind of a fake it till you make it a little bit. I think sometimes it's hard to even think about that. I think, I, you know, I, I have always talked about how what a wallower I am. I love to wallow. I will sit there and wallow. Um, but I think if you can remember all of what you just said and say, I can do a little bit, right? I can just do this little tiny thing. I can take a bath. I can walk the dog. I can watch Ted Lasso. I can do something that will just bring a little bit more. And there's a you know, a little bit more joy. And there's a scientific reason to do that. It it lifts us enough. And I think you said um, before that it lifts us enough so that we can build on that over time. Yeah. And and I think it's 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 not as much important to to know what it means maybe, but to just know that taking that step is, is helpful. So um, just to connect this to some really important research, Lucy Hone, Dr. Lucy Hone, who is probably the world's resilient grieving expert from Australia, was a resilience researcher. And then her daughter, teenage daughter was killed in a car accident. Oh. And so in through her journey of integrating the loss of her daughter, and the, you know, the upheaval to her family um, helps us understand that one of the driving questions in, in moving through the um, horror of grief into a place where you feel sort of restabilized again is the capacity to ask yourself what works and do more of that. And what works on a Monday may not be what works at all on a Tuesday, which may not be at all what works on Friday. But the capacity to say, what, what's working for me? You know, does it work for me to reach out to this friend? Does it work for me to curl up on the couch and watch Ted Lasso? Does it work for me to um, take a walk? Does it work for me to read a poem? And to be doubling down, paying attention to what's working, doubling down, that's really in alignment with this understanding of 3% happiness or 3% positivity, because in the territory of what works is often a positive state. And the chance to move on and rise above and figure out where the lessons are. And again, I sometimes it's really hard. I even say this, figure out where the lessons are. And I feel like, oh my God, I just, <laughs> it's just so hard when you're, you're going through these things. But, but I have found that all of these things have lessons in them that I am better able to handle the next thing because it doesn't end. You know, yes. we don't get, we don't get off the bus of, of suffering. It, it is part of life. And I always love the, and I'll just drop in here real quickly, the, the Buddhist story where the woman comes with the dead child in her arms and says, you know, can you bring him back to life? And he says, go find a mustard seed from every house that has not had suffering. And then I will bring your boy back to life. And of course, you know, there is no such thing. There is no home, no one that gets away without having it. So it's something that we have to figure out that, that there is a positive in that, although it may not sound like it, there is a positive in that, that we can build those tools. And, and, and that's what I find your work. So just so um, helpful. Yeah. And Donna, if we could just get super real for a moment, um, I'm, I'm sort of laughing internally. So for example, one of the things I know works for me is exercise. It always has 
It's always helped me physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, blah, blah, blah. Exercise is the last thing I'm prepared to do when my heart is broken. Yeah. But knowing that it works and knowing that three, I only need to take one step, 3%, you know, I don't challenge myself to do a, an hour and a half hike. I challenge myself to, could I lift that one weight and do five arm curls this morning? That's it. 10 seconds, five arm curls. That's it. You know? And when we make that sort of gentle, really gentle and kind approach with ourselves, we begin to reconnect with the part of ourselves that trust ourselves. And because one of the things loss, especially unexpected loss does, is it shatters our sense of trust in the universe, in the future as we had expected it to be. And it can also compromise our sense of trust that we know how to get through this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that um, I really appreciate the honesty about that. I think it brings to mind the idea that it's almost like you need to inoculate yourself for these things by already creating a self-care program for yourself that you can plug into when it hits. Yeah. Is that something that you think about or recommend to, to people? Well, it's one of the reasons I teach resilience relentlessly is because as we build resilience strategies and perspectives in the calmer times, they are more easily accessible yes. in the excruciating times. Um, George Bonanno's research from Columbia is um, extremely helpful in that he reminds us that we need a repertoire of tools and practices because what helped me navigate my divorce may or may not have been helpful when the pandemic hit which may or may not be helpful the next time I lose someone dear to me, right? So some things, exercise always helps me. It always has. I'm an idiot if I don't exercise. <laughs> and that isn't enough sometimes, right? So we, we do need a repertoire, which is why programs like yours are so important because we can tap back into knowledge and wisdom and get a sense of, oh, what's possible out there? And we can hear from other people on how they've done it. I think for me, I want to focus this not so much on the stories of people's difficulty, but how they've got past it. You know, I think we all, we all can have a little bit of trauma interest in people's trauma. You know, I, I think of Colleen Hoover immediately. Sorry, anybody who loves her, but it's a lot about, you know, <laughs> watching trauma happen and, and somehow getting some sort of response from it. I don't want to do that. I really want us to focus on the story, but also really mm -hmm. on how people have overcome. And I think um, hearing that they can, and that you, that, that gives you, you know, faith that you can too. Yes. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> I talked over you. I'm sorry. Um, how do you navigate the delicate balance of acknowledging the truth of your situation, but still instill a sense of possibility? I think that's, we've talked a little bit around that, but I think there's more there maybe, in mm -hmm. just getting that switch to happen. Like I always say to people turn the switch, but, or flip the switch, but it's hard to do. Yeah. I think we first, our first healthy step is to give ourselves permission to actually feel what we feel. You know, in my book, um, happiness after loss, the first chapter is entitled breathe. Mm -hmm. You know, our first job is to stay alive. 
because some losses literally bring us to our knees into a place where we're not sure it's worth staying alive or how we're going to possibly stay alive. And so the first step is breathe. And the second step is what has happened? You know, what am I actually feeling? What am I thinking? What I'm, what am I believing? Like, how is this hitting me? And there really is no growth without that kind of real uh, searing honesty. Um, when I counsel families who are losing someone, I often talk about how, you know, the the teenage daughter might want to return to school the two days after the funeral and the son can't get out of bed and the husband is enraged and the wife is shut down and the grandmother is can't stop sobbing and the grandfather is just bought a Porsche. Like what, you know, it's like, wait, wait, <laughs> what? Like, and that's all normal. Right. That is all normal in the grand scheme of what happens to us in grief. There's a, a huge range of responses that are really rooted in profound loss and um, that we first need to give ourselves permission to feel what we feel and notice what we're thinking in order to take those um, constructive steps forward. So that kind of radical honesty is is absolutely crucial. And um you know, parents often will express to me that if they, they've lost a child, for example, that one of the siblings has gone numb, you know, can't talk about it, won't write about it, back at school, but kind of flat affect. And I'll say, yeah, this could go on for a while because this is they're in shock, right? That this is a concussion and how we respond to a psychological concussion looks different on everyone. Um, so permission to feel what we feel first and then hopefully you know, be able to consider what is it that works for me and how can I move more and more in that direction? And also probably knowing that that's going to come back too. There's going to be times where you're going to feel that shock again. Like, you know, a holiday is a great one, you know, or an anniversary or a birthday, you can feel it again. It's like suddenly it's back again, this feeling that you've lost this person. There's a hole in your life. I had the experience of um, losing a therapist abruptly. My beloved oh. therapist developed brain cancer and then was gone within a few weeks. And in that time of her diagnosis and death, we didn't, none of us, none of our, her clients got to see her. So one day she was there and the next thing we knew she had died. And it was like, wait, oh my gosh. and that was happening at the same time that my daughter was quite ill and my husband was suffering some financial struggles. And it was just a time of real upheaval. And we came into the holiday gaunt, I call it the gauntlet, you know, in our family, yeah. we <laughs> Jewish holidays, as well as the American holidays, as well as Christmas and New Year's. And, and I realized I had this epiphany, oh my God, the holidays actually don't heal anything. <laughs> nope. <laughs> like nope. this fantasy that if I put the lights up or light the candles or bake the perfect, you know, apple pie for Thanksgiving, that somehow it will ease the suffering. And often what it does first is illuminate the suffering, the missing, yep. you know, that empty chair. It can, however, at the same time, bring a kind of poignant appreciation for who is a, who is with us and who is riding the holiday wave with us anyway. So both can be true, right? That they can Inc be healing and not healing at the same time. Incredibly true. I think that I... I'm only, you know, it's five years since um, Mario died and I am now only 
finding some joy in Christmas. And it it is, and then I then I don't. And then I have moments where I still have issues. So I think that I think that's an, an important way to look at it. I think to know that it 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 is again, it's it's and it's it's you know, I'm sad and I can still I I now have the awareness to enjoy the people that are in front of me. Um mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and where I don't, I don't think I would have before. I think there's, so again, those are the benefits of, of this work and doing the work on ourselves. Um, can you share a memorable instance where saying the thing others hesitate to say had a profound impact on someone's personal professional growth? Because I think you mentioned earlier the idea of honesty. I think I found that in your retreat. I think you know, I think we all want to hear ways to improve or ways to get through something, but I think it is almost as important, maybe more important to, to share the honest, you know, your honest feelings. I mean, you did some, you did some wonderful stories about, um, and you mentioned them here too, about losing your brother and, and just how we, how you got through it. And, and, and you know, it's like, oh, I've been feeling the same way. So let me talk a bit about those use of stories and how, how that's really helped people other than me. <laughs> um, let me, I'll tie in your first question to the story piece. So at, when the pandemic hit, I was invited to do quite a bit of webinars for corporations, uh, you mm. know, via zoom or teams, whatever. And these were organizations who were really worried about the mental health and well-being of their employees. And, you know, one of the things the pandemic did was pull back the curtain on how much we are carrying at home. And so in terms of that honesty or naming the thing that hasn't been named before, I would often begin a resilience webinar by saying, just love for you to post in the chat, how many of you are feeling like you just can't do this anymore? Yes or no. How many of you are feeling like um, you are overwhelmed with what you're being asked to carry? How many of you feel like um, work is keeping you sane, haven't, you know, and just, just naming and, and, and then the organizers, you know, in the, in the debrief call were always, oh my God, we had no idea there was that much pain. So that's a moment, hopefully when, um, the people who are stewarding the well-being of their employees have enough information in front of them that they can then begin to create programming that actually helps over time. Um, but the other, the other piece of that in terms of story is that there, you know, we do respond to grief differently or respond to loss differently. And there are some things that, that are common and universal. And one of the things that is universal is there's often a distortion. And so I'll tell the story, I'll use story to say, you know, I, after Johnny died, I, I remember going to the post office and I had a letter in my hand and I didn't know what to do with it. Like I couldn't remember. And I had to have the male person say to me, okay, sweetie, you're going to need to put a stamp on here. Would you like to buy a stamp? And I'm like, yes, that, yes. How much is this? Like I just couldn't. Um, and twice I left a full shopping cart of groceries in the grocery store because I, I, I remember literally turning down the cereal aisle and I, I felt like I was seeing a portal to another world. Like I, 
it didn't feel real to me. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I just walked out of the store. And the next thing I know, this huge wave of grief overtook me yeah. and I in the car for like a half an hour sobbing. Now, why the cereal aisle did that? I, I you know, who knows? but um, I don't know. I don't know, but, but it, you brought you me, you brought me to tears with that. Cause I think, I think everybody can relate to that. And exactly. thank you so much. I mean, I think it's, it's just letting people know that this is all part of it. And to give ourselves grace and to walk away, you walked away from those, you know, from that situation or let somebody help you, which are two things that are really hard to do. Yeah. I, I didn't even know what was happening enough to be able to turn to somebody and say, I don't know what to do with my grocery cart. Can you help me get to my car? Like I, I, I was so distorted. Um, in my thinking at the time. And some of that for me, and this might've been true for you, I'm sure was the lack of sleep. I, one of the things oh. that me when I lose someone is I, I can't, I just can't sleep. I just, there's no, there's no rest. Right. Um, there's no good rest. There's no good rest. That's a, that's a great way of saying it. Thank you, Donna. Yes. There's no good rest. Yeah. And I think it is, um, that is one of the things that I, the first thing that, try to trying to figure out how to to rectify that because i it's absolutely true that the that your rest is just dis, is um is disrupted and and in eating too i find that that's the other thing that goes for me too and so that i'm basically not taking care of anything uh and then you just can't make any decisions at all i was talking to i have a dear friend in israel who um oh. is a meaning researcher and you know, one of the things that happened to me after 9-11 is I realized I could not watch the evening news because there was no hope that I could close my eyes and rest if I watched more of the horror. And so I, we we were talking and I reminded her of that experience for me and, you know, along the lines of do more of what works and do less of what doesn't work if it doesn't work to watch the news. And she said she's caught in this turmoil because they absolutely want to know everything that's happening. And they and she feels like it is um, one of her uh, generosities is to bear witness along with the people who have, you know, relatives as, as hostages or who are fighting, who've been called up, et cetera. And um, so she feels this tension between staying on top of everything and knowing that those images are going to haunt her in the evening. Mm. She probably won't be able to rest and she has teenage girls at home. So, you know, this tension between what works and what doesn't work and how we take care of ourselves. And again, if physiological rest is very hard, which it often is for most of us, um, when we lose someone, then even more important, those moments of respite during the day where we can feel just a tiny bit of calm or a tiny bit of, you know, uplift or a tiny bit of, you know, a meaning that's healing for us. Thank you for telling me that story. Um, and maybe beside exercise, what's another thing that if you were to tell somebody in those situations that they could do to kind of give themselves that respite, what are the things that you typically recommend? So universally, most human beings find respite in connection. So to be thoughtful about who feels good to be near and around and open up, you know, the doorways to that connection, whether it's a phone call or a text or a walk, right? 
Um, also universally, most people experience some relief in being outside and seeing some aspect of the natural kingdom, whether it's, you know, the pigeons landing on the buildings in New York city or the flower growing through the concrete or the sky or the stars at night, you know, or the forest. Um, we know that those are often helpful for many people, some form of quieting the mind, meditation, prayer, yoga, qigong, you know, practices that quiet and still the mind for some people are helpful. Um, yeah, I and I would agree with all three of those. I think it's good to have more than one, right? Because sometimes meditation can be the hardest thing to do, although I'm a huge proponent. But, yeah. it, you know, in the in the difficult days, it's hard to, especially if you don't have a practice already, uh, walking outside can be a lot easier <laughs> to do. I, I, I'm, I've been meditating since I was 24. So literally 40 years. And, um, when I lose people, I can't meditate because my mind is not a happy place to be, but I can walk and I yes. can take deep breaths while I'm walking and I can read a poem. And those are meditative like experiences. Those are amazing. So I'm looking at the time because I want it is we're recording this right before the holidays. So uh, I, thank you again for being here, uh, even though it's going to air probably in January. Um, this is a busy time. So, uh, so really helpful. Is there anything else that you want to share before we tie up here? Because I want to you have so much knowledge and and I do really suggest folks go to this retreat and follow uh, Maria, uh, you know, just excellent work. Um, so anyway, please. Um, I think a couple things I, I would like to underscore. One is that we here in the West are absolutely nutty, like, like wrong, nutty, wrong about time. There is no time to healing or integrating loss. Some of us feel like we move forward fairly easily back into a life that's meaningful and sustaining. And some of us, it is a, you know, very slow, tiny step-by-step-by-step by step by step that feels like a crawl up a mountain, right? And it's yes. going to take years. So, and so we, we can do ourselves a lot of harm taking in messages about we should be quote unquote further along than we are, or we should have integrated by, or we should feel better by now. So any of that nonsense about time, please, you know, just thank you for sharing. Not interested. <laughs> yeah, often people want to want us to be further ahead than we actually are in terms of feeling like we're back to ourselves. I love the honesty of you saying, you know, this is this will be the fifth Christmas, and this is the first time I can feel a little joy in it. For me, that feels real. That feels like, yep, that sounds just about right. Um. And then the second thing is, is something that is fascinating to me is our incredible capacity as human beings to hold diverse and sometimes contradictory experiences internally at the same time. Like I can be so sad that my brother won't be here for Christmas and enjoy the, the, the warmth of the holiday. I can feel anguish about what is happening in Africa, the Ukraine, Israel, some of the streets in our country, right? 
um, Venezuela, Mexico. I can feel anguish about the state of the world and love building my glitter jigsaw puzzle with my you know, son's girlfriend who knows awesome. that I love glitter and she bought me a glitter jigsaw puzzle. And who That's needs amazing. It, right? <laughs> I love it. So we are capable. We are extraordinarily capable of holding multiple experiences at the same time. And once we understand that, it's it becomes easier and easier to forgive ourselves for feeling, oh, I wasted the morning because I, I, I felt nothing but guilt all morning long and I didn't do the things I needed to do and permission to have felt guilt and, and it's okay to be up now and moving, right? Like both are true. So that permission to have it all exist, I think is such a compassionate, kind stance to start from. Oh, that's so helpful. Um, thank you. I don't even know how to tell you how helpful this was to me to have this conversation today. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, I hope you all will follow Maria and, uh, her work and I, you're teaching at Wharton soon, right? Mindfulness at work. Mindfulness at work. Yes. In uh, March. That's exciting. And they're going to be very, very lucky to have you. Um, yeah. so again, thank you so much for being here. Just an honor. Thank you, Donna. That's all for today. If you want to learn more about Maria's upcoming Kripalu retreat, books, and other events, those links will be in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this episode was helpful. And if it was, please subscribe, drop a review, or share it with your friends and family. That's the best way to get it in the hands of those who may benefit. And if my daughters, Sienna and Sylvia, are listening, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. I just want you to know, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. And I love you so much. Bye now.